And today we are reading Titus chapter 2, verses 7 to 15. If you have your Bibles before you, Titus chapter 2, verses 7 to 15. Paul says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Titus, let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, we thank you today for your holy gospel and your holy word. We pray, Father God, that by the power of your spirit, you would make us to be those who are well taught, that you would open our eyes and open our ears and make our hearts, Lord, to be able to receive the good seed so that we might bear and bring forth the 30, the 60, and the hundredfold. Now, Lord, may the meditation of my heart, may all of our meditations today, Lord, may the words of my mouth, O God, may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue to look today at uh, Paul's letter to Titus, and uh, I'm hoping that by next week before uh, we begin Advent, I'll be able to, to wrap up with uh, this letter. And uh, in our passage today, Paul, he aims to make a clear distinction between God's people and those who merely profess to be God's people. The latter, those who profess to know God, but in truth don't, he says are distinguished by their actions. So if you look back to chapter 1, Paul says in 1.16, these are those who proclaim God, but they deny him by the way that they live. They deny him by their works. These people, Paul says, they have no appetite for obedience, but rather they live to indulge themselves. They live to satisfy their appetites, and that proclaims who their God really is. And so in verse 12, Paul calls this category of people lazy, and he calls them gluttons. Their profession of faith doesn't involve the work of faith, and their profession of faith is much more about pleasing themselves than it is about pleasing God. 
You see, true conversion, the true experience of being born again, it changes the orbit of our lives. The sinner outside of Christ orbits himself. He orbits his concerns, his priorities, her desires, her aims. The sinner, however, redeemed by Christ, even though God permits us to wrestle with our sinful selves from day to day, and even though we can seem to fail time and again, even so, the sinner who's redeemed by Christ, made a saint in Christ, now orbits God. He circles God, and he lives for his concerns, his priorities, his desires, His aims. Paul says that the man or the woman touched by grace is a new creature, absolutely, fundamentally new. And she now says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry land where there is no water and your steadfast love, oh God. It's better than life itself. You see, these are the native cries of the new creature in Christ. And these spiritual longings, they may ebb and flow. They may fluctuate. The planet can wobble in its orbit, but the orbit will never change. And so Thomas Goodwin, that great Puritan, he says to be born again, And to become a Christian is to make God's interests mine forever. (laughs) That's what he says means to be born again. And Paul wants to make a clear distinction between those who live to please themselves and those who live to please God. Two kinds of natures. Two kinds of people. And the Christian wants God above all. The Christian loves the things of God. He loves the church and God's service. He loves God's people and God's creation. He loves God's commandments primarily because he sees God in them. This, by the way, is one of the great points of Jonathan Edwards and his religious affections. And if you haven't read Edwards, I believe there's a copy in our library. And if it's not there, you should rebuke me. I think it's there. This is one of his... Great points that if God has made you new, your desires will be different because you've been made a new creature with different longings for different things. And so the bulk of chapter 2 here then in Titus is Paul's attempt to describe what the true life of grace looks like. The experience of grace will make your life look a different way. It will look like something. And that something, Paul says, is godliness. That something is the act of life of obedience. It's a people, he says, and if you look at verse 10, it's a people who adorn the doctrine of God. It's a people, if you look at verse 12, who've been trained to renounce ungodly ways. And it's a people, if you look in verse 14, who've been redeemed from all lawlessness. 
And so I want to look briefly today with you at those three things, those three features of the life of grace. First of all, verse 10, the man or the woman of grace who's been born again to a living hope through faith in Jesus, that person, Paul says, lives to adorn the doctrine of God in everything. Everything that they do is governed by this rule to adorn the doctrine, to adorn the idea, to adorn the teaching of God. Now, to adorn something is to bring out its beauty. To adorn something is to draw our attention to something. To adorn something is to make people notice something. Why do we adorn the Christmas tree? Why do you put those baubles and the tinsel or whatever it is you put there, the popcorn, the streamers, why do you put those things there except to make people notice the tree? Some adorning, admittedly, is better than others. <laughs> at Christmas time, but the point for all is to draw attention to the tree. And what Paul is saying is this, when we live godly and obedient lives, when we're upright in the workplace, when we don't cut corners, when we're upright in the classroom and we don't cheat, when we're faithful and we perform what we're supposed to do from nine to five, when we control our tongues and we don't give ourselves to gossip and slander, when we're self-controlled and not addicted to various appetites and lusts, when we live in this way, says Paul, we bring attention to God and our lives, they begin to adorn the very idea and the teaching of God and we make God to appear in all of His glorious riches. See, the saints' affections, to go back to Edwards, the saints' affections, he says, they begin with God. And we like our work in the workforce primarily because it's the sphere where we can make God known, not only through gossiping the gossip, and uh, gossiping the gospel and speaking the word of God, but by living it, simply by being faithful and godly people, Paul says, we adorn the idea of God. We make people to think about God. <laughs> and it's a wonderful thought, isn't it? That anywhere God puts you or me vocationally, anywhere, it's the opportunity to adorn the doctrine of God, to make God appear great and good and infinitely superior to anything this world can offer. Paul says this is true even in spheres of work that are less than desirable. Even here, you can bring attention to God. Now, we must not make light of slavery. It appears here in verse 9, and I don't want to get bogged down today in an exposition of slavery in the Bible, and I can't possibly talk about what slavery meant in the Roman world, nor could we compare faithfully slavery then with slavery now. But Paul does mention slavery in verse 9, and when he does so, it's simply important to know today that he does not here intend to evaluate Roman law. But he recognizes its binding presence. There it was. This Roman socioeconomic system by law in which Roman Christians found themselves. 
And what Paul says here is that in the light of this present Roman system, godliness must prevail in the believer so that attention may be drawn to God. And while most of us here don't find ourselves in that situation, we do find ourselves in a system of the world that is by no means utopian. We still live in imperfect laws and under imperfect regulations, and we still face injustices in our places of work, whether it's the injustice of wage, or the injustice of a co-worker, or the injustice of corporate mobility, or the injustice of an assigned task. We will all face this, each of us, in various ways. And Paul says to us today, wherever it is that you find yourselves, you have an opportunity to adorn the idea of God. Number one. Secondly, Paul says the true believer is one who is trained, verse 12, to renounce ungodly ways and worldly passions. The grace of God has appeared, he says in verse 11. Well, where has it appeared, Paul? It has appeared in the historic person of Jesus Christ, who was the appearance of God's gracious resolve to save his people from their sins. Now, grace and the appearance of grace does not mean, from Jesus' words, I've done it all, now you just coast, now you just go. I've just taken care of everything, coast your way to glory. I remember being at a young adult service uh, in my early 20s, many years ago now. And in that service, they had brought in a Calvary Chapel pastor. I probably shouldn't have said that, but there I did. Uh, he, they brought in a pastor who came to speak to us about grace, what grace meant. And the metaphor that he used was something like this. He said he had had a particularly busy week with many pressing duties, appointments, papers, projects, and his office desk had grown into a small mountain of things to do, stuff to get done. And in the mounting pressure of all this responsibility, he said he had a revelation from God about grace, that the Christian life was not about doing, but the Christian life was what's been done for us in Christ. And so with that epiphany, he took his arm, he said, with all that stuff to get done, and he pushed it aside off his desk into the wastebasket with an exclamation of grace. I'll just rest in God, he says. I don't need to do anything. It's grace. But that's not how grace works, Paul says. Grace trains us, he says. Training means exertion. Training is for labor. Training is for work. You train to run. You train to climb. You train in order to exert yourself for something. And the training process, if ever you've trained for anything before, you know it's a difficult thing to do. It's costly. The benefits of training are amazing, but the training itself is a difficult thing to do. It's hard. And there are a number of people in this Christian world who profess to be believers for whom the experience of the Christian life has no difficulty about it at all. No sweat. No labor. No exertion. 
The saddest symptom, writes J.C. Ryle, about so many called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict or fight in their Christianity. You see, Christianity is termed a good fight. It's a fight against the sinful flesh. It's a fight against the devil. And it's a fight against all those various seemingly unlimited allurements of our age which say, satisfy yourself. Give to yourself. Promote yourself. Exalt yourself. Take your rest now. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's owed to you. Your best life now. And the Christian life is against these things. The Christian life is against these values and against these appetites, and it's a fight. And grace, Paul says, it puts us in a training room for the purpose of a holy conflict. It's hard work, my brothers and sisters, to fight these things. It involves long hours in prayer. It involves the discipline and the daily study of the Word of God. It, it involves turning away from that beckoning screen and giving yourself to fasting and giving yourself to self-denial. It involves deep valleys of humiliation and long storms of affliction through which God leads us to break us of our pride and our longing to be noticed and our desire to be admired, and our satanic self-centeredness. It involves terrible spiritual conflict, Paul says, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness who are armed against you and me every day. The Christian faces real monsters, my brother and sister. The Christian faces real dragons. And this, Paul says, is the direction that grace, as a trainer, pushes us to work, to labor, and to fight. And God, in His grace, through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, gives us the power to do this very thing and to be about this very thing every day of our lives. Grace, Paul says, is not exemption from labor. Grace is what equips us and qualifies us to do God's work. Secondly. Thirdly, and finally, the true believer, verse 14, is the one who is redeemed from lawlessness, Paul says. One of my favorite theologians is a man who used to teach at Westminster Seminary. His name was John Murray. He writes this, he says, Scripture does not say we are redeemed from the law. We are not redeemed, he says, from our obligation to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind. We're not redeemed from the obligation to love our neighbor as ourselves. The law is comprehended in these two commandments and love is a fulfilling of the law. It would contradict the very nature of God to think that any person could ever be relieved of the necessity 
to love God with the whole heart and to obey His commandments. Brothers and sisters, Paul today does not say that we are redeemed from the law. Rather, he says that we are redeemed from lawlessness. We are redeemed from being without the law. Sin, as the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. Everyone who sins, he says, practices lawlessness. The nature of sin is to hate and is to spurn God's laws. This was Jesus' charge against the Pharisees. Not that they loved God's law too much, but that they didn't love it at all. You are full, he says, of hypocrisy. And you are full of lawlessness, he says. Matthew 23. When I send you prophets, he says. When I send you scribes. When I send you wise men who bring you my word and who bring you my law. What do you do with them? You stone them. And you persecute them. You crucify them, he says. And grace, Paul says, it's come to redeem us from our hatred of God's righteous law. Grace makes us the kind of people who can say with the psalmist, Oh Lord, I love what you command. It's sweeter to me than honey. And on our own, we don't want that. On our own, we do not want this. None of us do. And this is so important for us to recognize today. By nature, we hate God. By nature, we hate His laws. By nature, we hate His holy commandments. And part of the trouble of the Christian life is to recognize that there's still an active part in us that still does hate those things. Brothers and sisters, let me say to you today that to sin in any way is to hate God. And if you don't find yourself routinely repenting because you've hated Him, <laughs> for hating His laws, even as you love Him, you become ashamed, oh God, how can it be that I can hate You and hate Your laws? If this isn't part of Your repentance, then you've not yet experienced the depth of what repentance means of grieving before a God that we love. But thanks be to God, Paul says, Christ has come as our great hope and He redeems us from that very lawlessness that we are afflicted by, not only by absorbing our guilt, not only by bearing it on Calvary and suffering our punishment on the cross, but now Christ lives as the new and the last Adam, the only one who's ever kept the law and loved the law. Christ is the man of Psalm 1. <laughs> The only one who's ever prayed Psalm 1 with utter integrity of heart and has kept the law of God day and night and who lives the blessed life. And Christ as the new and the last Adam, now He invites you and me who could never keep His law. He invites us into His life. And He joins us to His bone. And He joins us to His flesh. And He says, let me now live my love for my Father's law through you. His rapture, our rapture. His delight, our delight. His obedience, our obedience. Christ becomes all. He's the only one who's for God. And He invites us into His own experience by grace.
And in Christ, we begin to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. And we begin to love our neighbor as ourselves because he is the law keeper and he alone. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God, give us today grace to live in Jesus and through Jesus for your glory alone. And Father, may all of us here today, may we be the people of grace that are orbiting you. If you're here today and if you've not given your heart to Jesus, the Lord says, hear my voice. If anyone knocks, if anyone asks, I will come in and I will fellowship with you and I will give my life for you. And if that's you today, and if you need to invite the Lord into your heart, you pray with me, O Lord Jesus Christ, I am a great sinner. You are a great Savior. Save me from my sins and live your holy life through me. I ask it in your name. Amen.